Hey, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Let's get real for a second. There are charlatans out there. There's people out there trying to give you advice, trying to sell information, trying to market themselves as an expert, a master, when they don't always have the goods to back it up. And I hope that I do not offer myself in that role. I'm a 24-year-old. I've got a lot of life to live and experience to gain before I can call myself a master of anything. But frankly, my guest today does fall squarely in that category. Dinesh Kondanshatha has been a part of three separate companies that got acquired, every time working in the sales and marketing department. He is now a investor, a business coach, and public speaker. And in this realm where a lot of people can happily proclaim themselves as business coaches, he really does bring the goods. Uh, and it's very, very apparent over the course of this conversation, the depth along with the breadth of his knowledge. I you know, often say to guests that I'd love to do it again sometime, but I'm already counting the days until I can interview Dinesh again. I learned a lot. I know I'm walking away from this conversation with a lot more wisdom myself, and I'm confident that you're going to do the same. So I know you probably usually listen intently, but if you can ramp that up five more percent, uh, maybe take some notes or listen to it a second time. I think you're going to get a lot from my conversation with Dinesh Kendanchatha. So Dinesh, thank you so much for coming on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Happy to have you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. The big narrative that's very clear in uh, researching your background as I learned a little bit more about you is you've been part of three uh, very successful startups or successful in the sense that they were acquired all three times and you were always kind of operating in the marketing and sales sides of things. But I actually want to start before that and talk a little bit about what you were doing before you got in got interested in the marketing and sales side of things i know you had kind of the more engineering uh scientific background so start us off there sure so i i um didn't come to technology naturally i uh started out as a actually a very different background my during my teens i really was very interested in in religion and science and um, I'm East Indian in origin um, and I come from a Hindu family so I actually spent a lot of time as a young person studying both alternative medicine and biochemistry and psychology. My bachelor's was in neuroscience um, and the idea there was that uh, to really kind of work and act in the world I guess um, helping people heal both from a, a spiritual and and uh, physical and mental, all three dimensions. Um, and so that's kind of how I went to university. I did my bachelor's, et cetera. And then, you know, I was going to go to medical school or graduate school and, um, you know, got into it and decided this really wasn't what I wanted to do, which is, you know, rather a late understanding after you've spent, you know, 
a lot of years of professional schooling. And so I, I, I needed to make a pretty major shift. And so I chose to um, do something that I was pretty radically different, uh, which was going to business. Um, and that meant finding a group of very talented technical um, folks who would be interested in giving me a shot. And I had, this was back in the early 90s when, you know, I make the joke, if you could spell HTML, you could get a software job. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I luckily got one, proved to be very poor at it right from the outset, but I understood and could communicate the, you know, technology in layman's terms and connect it to value. And so I went from being a technical uh, person on the development side to a technical person on the business side. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I made not quite the same transition, but I transitioned into a sales job in software. And I had basically that, that same type of anxiety where I was concerned that I wasn't fluent enough to be able to make a sale and have that communication. But what you learn is that uh, just because you're selling something technical, does not necessarily mean that the person you're selling it to has a high level of technical acumen. And often it's being an educator, being someone who can teach them and explain it in a clear way that makes those sales happen. You hit it on the nose. It's uh, it's it's not about who being the smartest guy in the room. It's about being the clearest guy in the room. And that's really my focus is how do I take away the techno mumbo jumbo and put it into terms that anybody could clearly understand, um, which does require you understanding it at some levels a deep in a deep way, the technology you're selling. But you ask different questions when you're seeking understanding as opposed to looking smart. What I'm really curious to ask you about is given this background that maybe wasn't directly pointed towards a career in sales and marketing, do you think that how much of sales do you think is a learnable skill and how much of it is an innate talent? I think it's very learnable, but I think the the context of learning is caring. Um, I think that's where most salespeople fall down is they learn the skills of sales, um, which is to me the science, but they don't they don't have a value system that's driving the science. And um, maybe it's my orientation, but you know I view that my job as a salesperson or a business person is to make my clients, my customers, my employees' lives better. Um, not necessarily easier. But better and better means sometimes having tough conversations. Better usually means caring more about what's good for them um, and trusting that when you care about what's good for them, it'll be good for you. And so that's the part I think that a lot of folks fall down on is they read all the books, um, but they don't they don't have the right context or orientation, which is how do I make this customer's life better? Um, and if I can't meaningfully make it better, how do I find another customer that I could make it better for? Are there ways that you're, so you you kind of mentioned the books there. Are you skeptical of the books? Do you think they play, like are a piece of the pie? What, What other routes or methods did you go about improving your abilities? I don't don't want to necessarily say skills because that is maybe just solely pointing at the scientific side of it. Yeah. So it's, um, it's for sure. I love books. I'm a avid reader. I'm a firm believer in, you know, a book a month and I, Try to, what I try to do actually is I have a two-phase process of um, reading. One is I read, I read and have use Audible a lot. I work out every day, so I like to listen to books on tape. And 
what I'll do is I'll go through all, go through a book a month, which is roughly 12 books a year, um, sometimes a little more if I get some, you know, time, more plane time in. And then what I'll do is every year I'll select one, one book, which to me is a book that I need to keep reading. And I will uh, reread that book over and over and over and over again, because that's something that I think people don't recognize, that it's not about the quantity of the knowledge that you acquire, it's about the depth in which you're practicing it. And so of the 12 books that I pick, one will be really meaningful um, to me and I see as being a call a foundational skill or a foundational attribute. And I'll just keep reading it over and over again. Good news is every time you read it, you know, you read it more quickly because you can skip through all the narrative parts and you get to the meat of the it. But the process of rereading or re-listening reignites those ideas and, you know, motivates you to go practice them. And yeah, so that's kind of my process. And I think any any person who is not on a path of development or in terms of reading or meeting people or getting new ideas is gonna is probably gonna struggle a lot. So reading is a huge part of it. Yeah, and I think there's also just the the nature of when you read something a second time, you kind of take different things away from it. I know there was one book, uh, it's called The Gospel, according to Larry, that I read when I was like a young teen and then just came back to it to just because I had enjoyed reading it when I was younger mm-hmm. and just took like a completely different message of what the, the book was trying to get at. And that's always, that's always a fun experience as well. It is, yeah. So in getting into a little bit more about this journey uh, through different companies with these different acquisitions. Um, When we connected before this interview, uh, one of the things that we really wanted to make sure we talked about were the challenges that you had to overcome uh, along the way of, of this successful career that you've had. And the one that I wanted to start off with was firing your first employee, because I know a lot of people out there listening are maybe pretty early on in their journey, in their path. And if they have entrepreneurial dreams uh, and want to build an organization, a company, that's probably a reality that's on their horizon, whether or not they want to accept it. So I'd love if you could uh, tell us the story of that and and what that experience was like and what you learned. Yeah, I was very young. My first employee I got rid of when I was probably younger. How old are you? 24. Yeah, so I was 21. Um, So pretty young. <clears throat> and the person I was letting go was in their late 30s um, with a family and everything. And I, I remember it quite vividly. So, you know, the, the two things I would say is, first off, um, letting an employee go is um, has to be based on good reasons. Um, and, you know, there, there are good reasons and you need to know what they are. And it's not either A, it's because the person isn't um, uh, functioning in the way that you thought. It may be that you financially don't have, you know, the means because that happens a lot. Um, and so you can't afford that person anymore. And, or, you know, there, there's probably a, a whole bunch of reasons. Most people don't sit down and write them out. And I did. I sat down and I wrote down the list and I looked at that list. And then the other thing I said was, well, what happens if I wrote down was, what happens if I don't do this? What happens to my company? What happens to me? What happens um, to this individual? And write down that list. Um, you know, if I don't let this person go, I don't have cash to make other people's salaries. I can't make payroll. Okay. If I don't let this person go, my customers are going to uh, look at my business with less respect. My software is not going to work. Um, 
you know, my, my other employees are going to be distracted and disillusioned. There's lots of good reasons. It just, you need to write them down, right? Um, I'm a firm believer that there are no bad people. There are occasionally bad people if they're stealing from you, but for the most part, there are no bad people. Um, and, you know, it's just a bad situation or a bad fit. And I, try to reflect that in the conversation with the individual. So if I'm meeting with them, you know, I'll sit down and I'll explain the situation. I'll explain the rationale uh, to the extent I can. When I was in a small company, um, you know, I didn't have as many lawyers around me. So they were much more, I guess, personal conversations as the companies got bigger and, you know, more lawyers were involved. I was less able to have that conversation at the termination interview or exit interview. So, you know, I would do something like, you know, had the appropriate protocol followed as per employment law. And then I would say, you know, I'm going to reach out from you with to you in two weeks. Um, and I you feel free to ignore me or tell me you don't want to talk to me. But if you do want to talk to me, I'd love to have a coffee with you and see how I can help you wherever it is you're going. And you know, that to me is a positive way you're saying, look, this is a bad situation. You're not a bad person. I may not be, if, if the person isn't, didn't do their job properly, I will say, sit down with them and I will have that tough conversation with them where I say, here are all the things that didn't work while you were working with me. And, you know, I'm happy to help you deal with some of those things. You know, if you need resources, if you need um, contacts, I'm happy to do that. That's not the same as saying I'm going to give you a reference, right? If the person had to leave because they, um, you know, you couldn't afford them, you can say that, look, this is partially on me. I couldn't afford you. And so let me help you find something else. And I hope your experience was good working with me. And let me get my business back on track. And we'll talk again. Yeah, the two big things I'm hearing is number one, bringing some real humanity to the situation, not making it cold and personal just because it's business. Uh, Some some people might think that you should or are capable of, but also having a long term view because you never know where that person's going to go. You know, in previous episodes of the show, Dinesh, we've talked about the importance of a network and real connection, um, not just having a large rolodex of people who begrudgingly answer your phone call. And I think that that is so evident in that answer that having that perspective of, you know, still wanting to be a resource and have a connection to these people uh, goes into every one of those interactions. And I, frankly, I've gotten a lot better at it. I'm, I, you know, I, that's one of those unfortunate things you have to learn. I'm sure when I did it at 21, I, I've got some revisionist history here going on that I wasn't nearly as eloquent as I sound right now. But I tell you, looking at it now and having gone through multiple companies and, you know, had an had a 20 year career where you know, this has been a sadly a, a part of it. There's just no way around it. Um, I, you know, I try to, I try not to look at it as a business thing. Um, there are business reasons why you're doing it, but this is a human interaction. And the more human you can be through the experience, um, you know, the better for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another part that we want to talk about in terms of obstacles to overcome is that period before you actually have to let someone go or fire them. Uh, the leadership, the management to communicate urgency, help get people to execute, deal with the potentially unmotivated uh, employee. Can you talk a little bit about your development in that arena? Yeah. Um, so people always leave this too late. 
I am a firm believer that within the first 30 days, I know if someone is going to succeed or not. And I don't know whether it's just, you know, a gut reaction um, or, you know, a blink effect uh, if you're a Malcolm Gladwell fan. But the fact is, is that I there I just know. And if somebody isn't going to succeed, I try to uh, bring it up very, very quickly. Um, and if the person is succeeding, I try to bring it up quickly. I have a very, um, I have a very kind of strict onboarding process. And my onboarding process is um, very intensive um, at the outset. And then it progressively steps, I step back as I get values alignment. What I believe is this, is I believe that people have different skills and different ways of doing things. Um, But in order for me to work well with you, there has to be a values match. So I need to understand, you know, a couple of key things. One is, what is the gap between what you say and what you do? So if you say something, do you do it 100% of the time? Do you do it 90% of the time? Do you do it 50% of the time? I, it's, it's a very interesting metric because most people have um, a say-do gap in the 70% range. 70% of what they say they actually do, um, the other 30% they get to eventually. And um, it's really, really important for me to have a 90-plus say uh, 90 plus percent execution rate. So that's one of the things I start very early is I say, look, don't say it if you're not going to do it. Just don't say it. Say, I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. So I'm not committing to that. And I'd rather have that conversation early and set that expectation. So that's value statement number one. Number two. Can I, can I, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask a, an execution question on that? Sure. So I'd imagine if you have a, a relatively large organization, is, is that something that you're basing off feel? Is that something that you're tracking in any sort of way? I'd, I'd love to just, from an execution standpoint, understand that a little yeah, bit Yeah, so we do, it, we do it throughout the organizations that I'm part of. So everybody with their direct report. So everyone meets and does a five-minute, and depending on how long they've worked together, it could be daily, it could be twice weekly, it could be once weekly. Those are the three choices. And it's a five-minute catch up. And in that five minute catch up, the top priorities are listed for the week. And, you know, the what's done and not done is captured, right? And that's all we do is we say, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to do A, B, C, three things. Great. We get to the next day. Did any of those three things get done? And if the answer is no, what did get done? Um, because you spent yesterday saying that was the most important thing in your lap, in your in your week. So it's very, very simple. And we just track that. We have a very simple uh, form. We use Skype and other messaging tools. And you just scroll back and you go, okay, you know, here's how many of the things I said I was going to do, I did. And at the end of the week, you tally them up. And Hopefully you're at 70% or better or you're closer to 90%. And if you're not, there's a mechanism for us to sit down and immediately talk about why this is important and why you need to make commitments that you can deliver to. And um, you know, if that's not going to work out, then we, we're talking about that very, very early. That's immensely clarifying. Thank you, Dinesh. Uh, I'll let you continue with the uh, philosophy management. Yeah, sure. So the second major area then is around uh, val- the other value is competency, right? And so I I don't care how you get it done. It's just you that you achieve the outcome in a way that's c- consistent with the principles of the culture of the organization. And so a lot of what my work in terms of management is is setting clear objectives, you then describing the person who works for me, um, describing, you know, what is the key things they need in terms of support and key activities that they need to do outcomes to achieve 
to to achieve whatever it is the final outcome is. And if you don't know the answer, this is a great point to say, I don't know the answer. I'm going to go away and discover it. And one of the things I'm going to do is by next meeting tomorrow, I'll, I'll let you know what, what I need. So it's a very, very simple management process. So those are the two things. If you do those two things really, really well, as you demonstrate competency every day, the tasks that are important um, and you know that you're prioritizing and you execute relentlessly on the things you say you're going to do, we'll get along fine. If you are unable to do it and you're unable to ask for help and you're unable to um, um, execute on the things you commit, well, I'm going to discover that really, really fast because this this process allows me to very quickly have those conversations. And at the end of 30 days, you know, we'll decide this is a bad fit or we'll decide it's a great fit and we'll go from meeting once every day or every other day down to once a week down to maybe once every two weeks because you've got a business cadence that works with me. Gotcha. That's such great information. I'm sure that uh, listeners are definitely taking notes right now. At least I would hope so. I want to transition now. This is immensely clarifying and you're probably giving a lot of this wisdom to those that you work with right now. But can you just tell people a little bit more about what you're doing now, uh, having gone through these three acquisitions, uh, kind of moved into a different phase? Can you clarify that for people? Sure. I I continue. So there's three elements to what I'm doing. I continue to operate companies. Um, I'm in the process of uh, my fourth company right now. I am a active... um, um, investor and board member in a bunch of different companies. So I have um, I have a, a small angel investing, I guess, practice or uh, area where we where I go in and work with one to two companies a year. I'll make an investment plus also help uh, from an operational perspective of sales, marketing, business operations, and you know the idea there is to uh, to help them with a seed round as part of. Um, a prelude to a Series A, uh, Series A round, you know, being a larger round where an institutional investor would come in. And I also, and then I work with entrepreneurs, mostly first-time entrepreneurs, who are um, who are going through this process of of building companies to get to help them understand how to build enterprise value, um, how to structure their business so that it's not a job that pays their salary, but an asset that's going to be, um, you know. Uh, valuable in the future that they can crystallize that value in some in some way and you know i keep my i keep busy so i also start i'm also started my own company that um um, is in the security space so i'm those are kind of what i'm up to pretty busy guy (laughs) sounds like a lot of hats i would love to so so one thing i come across you know just being out of school recently a lot of friends who are you know still kind of transitioning out of school and as much as entrepreneur has become a kind of sexy job title and aspirational idea for a lot of people. The angel investor, venture capitalist also occupies that space for a lot of people. And I, and I hear people saying that that's what they want to do. And just looking at your route and the route of many folks is that they had to start, run, execute one, if not multiple companies to get there. Um, Is that what you would advise people who are interested in getting to that stage of the game to do? Is there another route that you recommend? Uh, Do you, or do you even, I'd imagine you get that question of how do you become an angel investor? Yeah. So unless you have a really rich uncle or parents who are going to give you, you know, a couple of million bucks to go play with, you're pretty much forced to make it on your own. And there's two ways of doing it. Well, there's multiple ways of doing, but I guess, 
two ways that I think are most common. Uh, one is real estate. A lot of folks, you know, can make early investments in real estate with very little capital, and you know, you can you can get some great leverage on that. And the other is business, right? And so, if you want to become an investor, the best way to learn how to evaluate investment opportunities is to actually run a business in the area that you're investing in. So, I invest in technology companies. Why do I invest in technology companies? Because I understand what it takes to make a technology company. Successful. I have a network that can make my investments more successful, both from the capital market side, but also from the customer side. And so I invest in what I know. And to me, how you get your money to be an angel investor is secondary question to the first question is what are you going to invest in? And you want to invest in things that you know, things that you know inside and out and are able to um, are able to, uh, to to maximize your very, very slim odds. The fact is that 99 out of 100 businesses are out of business in 10 years. And so you have a 1% chance of the companies you invest in to be around to get your money back out within 10 years. Uh, so those are really horrible odds. So you might as well, if you're going to be an investor, you might as well maximize your leverage and try to try to pick things that are going to not only lever your money, but your expertise, your network. That's great advice. I, I think that that'll be helpful for a lot of people out there, Dinesh. Uh, Want to start wrapping up here, but before we uh, tell people where to connect with you and you issue a personal challenge, wanted to see if there's anything I just didn't give you a chance to say today. Well, I, I you, for all the young folks, I guess, who are looking at entrepreneurship, recognize that um, it is way harder than going and getting a job. And that, but the rewards are phenomenal. You can go for two things. You can choose, you can make two choices in life. You can choose security or you can choose freedom. And jobs are a form of, of short term security. Um, but you give up freedom. You give up the, the ability to decide what you do on any given day. Uh, when you are an entrepreneur, you have all the freedom of the world. You can choose to do absolutely nothing today. But you have no security. Security comes when you make freedom, when you're successful at freedom, because then you have a level of security that, you know, 90, everybody else who has a job will never have. No one can ever fire me. And, you know, that's something that uh, you have to think about. It's a conscious decision. It needs to be made thoughtfully is what's more important to you, security or freedom. That's an excellent point and a, uh, a sentiment that I would certainly echo. Dinesh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. If people want to connect with you, learn more, where are the digital coordinates that we can direct them to? Uh, so there's a bunch. You can get a hold of me on LinkedIn, um, linkedin.com, front slash in, front slash Dinesh K at work, clarity.fm. If people are interested in connecting with me there, clarity.fm, Dinesh K at work, um, Twitter, Dinesh K at work. So, uh, or my website, which is dineshk.co. So there's all lots of different ways to get a hold of me. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link to all of those at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast, place you can find the show notes for this in every episode of the show. But as we do at the end of every episode, Dinesh, I want to give you the mic one last time to take it away with a personal challenge for the listeners. So my personal challenge, I think, is to count your I can'ts in the next seven days and change one of them to I can. And it's biggest challenge for entrepreneurship is the fact that I can't or it won't work 
is what everyone's going to tell you. And being able to transform can't to can, even on a small task, is the foundation of value creation. And that's what entrepreneurs do. We create value. I love it. I hope everyone out there will take the challenge and connect with Dinesh. Uh, Once again, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. That was great questions. Thanks. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and enjoyed that conversation. If you want to continue to enjoy great conversations, there's two things that you need to do. Hit the subscribe button to the podcast right now and then head on over to goingdeepwithaaron.com slash join so that you can get a once monthly newsletter of highly curated digital content, podcasts, videos, links, tools, tips, and tricks that you'll be able to utilize to make yourself more effective and smarter and continue on that path to more wisdom that we are all actively seeking, actively pursuing. This is not a show of the mindless zone out. It is one of personal development and growth. And I think we'll continue to do that as long as you keep listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson.